from the Book of Common Prayer, Church of Ireland edition, and it is a collect for the Feast of St. Patrick. Seems appropriate for today of all days. Um, do you know anything about St. Patrick? Some of you don't know. I think the only thing that people know about St. Patrick is it a great day to, you know, pour green food coloring into the river and, uh, you know, drink a lot and so forth. St. Patrick was actually an extraordinary individual for those of you who don't know the real story behind Patrick. Somebody was asking me on the way in about St. Patrick. St. Patrick was a 5th century missionary, an evangelist, and he was kidnapped. He was living in Britain, and he was kidnapped when he was about 15 or 16 years old, and he was taken off to Ireland by Irish pirates where he was enslaved. And uh, he was mistreated, had a very difficult time, but managed to escape and get back to Britain where he was ultimately converted to the Christian faith and became a priest. And then God laid upon his heart that he should go back and evangelize the very people who had enslaved him. And so he went back from Britain to Ireland and became the great evangelist of the Irish people. So if you have Irish blood, um, you can thank St. Patrick. But really, you ought to thank England because, you know, it all comes back to England in the end anyway. So if the English had not, or the British, Britain in those days, had not evangelized Patrick, Patrick could not have evangelized the Irish. The Irish could not have saved civilization. So it all comes back to Mother England. I just want you to realize that. I see you're all wearing green out there, but there are a few of you that are appropriately attired in orange, and I'm glad to see that today as well. So let's go ahead and have a prayer for St. Patrick on this, his feast day. O Almighty God, who in thy providence didst choose thy servant Patrick to be the apostle of the Irish people, that he might bring those who were wandering in darkness and error to the true light and knowledge of thee. Grant us so to walk in that light, that we may come at last to the light of everlasting life through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. So, happy St. Patrick's Day to you all. Well, we are turning to another saint today. We are turning to the Apostle Paul, and we are in Romans chapter 3, our continuing study of this great epistle. And we're going to begin at verse 3, and we are going to go ahead and read through verse 11. Paul writes, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, for as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. For as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. 
No one does good, no, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. It is a rare thing for us to get to see a great mind at work these days. But Paul was a great mind. Paul was an extraordinary individual. And I think about Paul, I think about how we're told he took the gospel to the Greco-Roman world and how he would go into the synagogues if there was a Jewish synagogue there and how he would reason with them from the scriptures. And I'm reminded of how Paul, when he went to Athens, he reasoned with the members of the Areopagus there on Mars Hill with that great debating society with the great philosophers, the great minds of the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Paul was an extraordinary individual. I would have loved to have seen Paul in action, reasoning with them. That word reasoning, by the way, carries with it the idea of dialogue, so we can assume that there was some give and take that was taking place there. They would have been questioning Paul, and he would have been answering, and then he would have been returning with questions I love that sort of thing. I love that exchange of ideas. I love that sort of intensity. But as I said, you don't see that very often today. The presidential debates should provide that sort of thing for us today, but that is hardly the case. In recent years, it looks more like reality TV than it does any kind of exchange of deep ideas. But Paul was certainly engaged in that sort of thing, and he had a first-class mind And while we don't actually have a record of exactly how those debates went in the New Testament when he was in Athens or when he was reasoning in the synagogue, we do here in Romans chapter 3, I think, get a sense of the kind of conversation that would take place between Paul and those who were on the other side of the debate. Because Paul mentions some of the things that the people would have questioned, some of the things that they would have objected to here in the beginning. For example, chapter 3, verse 1, he asks this rhetorical question. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? That was surely one of the questions that people were asking as Paul is going out and preaching the gospel of grace, that we are saved not by our efforts, not by our works, and not by our pedigree. One of the questions, surely, that people would have asked is, well, then what advantage do the Jews have? What advantage is there for me being a Jew and submitting to all of the restrictions of the law, Paul, if I'm saved by grace, not by works, if it's not a matter of who my parents were? So surely that was one of the questions that was raised. And Paul, we said, dealt with that. He dealt with that objection. He fleshes these questions out in Romans chapter 9. Paul answered, he said, they had a number of advantages. He said the Jews had the adoption as sons. They had the divine glory. They had the covenants. We said it's more than one covenant. This would have been the Noahic covenant. It would have been the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all of these covenants, the Davidic covenant, and so forth. They had received the law of all the nations of the earth. They had been given the commandments, a sense of what God expected of them. They had been given the temple worship and the sacrifices for the covering of sin, the promises, the patriarchs. And he said through them came 
the human ancestry of the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. But chiefly, he said, the greatest advantages of all for the Jews was that they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. They had been entrusted with the Word of God. And we took a look at what that meant last week. We took a look at the significance of the Bible, the Scriptures. Paul says that was their chief advantage. So that was one of the questions that was brought to Paul. Well, in the verses that we're going to look at today, another question is raised. A question and a quibble. A question and a quibble. So as Paul's going out preaching the gospel, one of the questions asked is, what is advantage does the Jew have? What is the value of circumcision? Here's the other question that was asked. What if some of the Jews did not have faith? Paul would have been the first to acknowledge that the Jews had many advantages. He had all of these things that no other people on the face of the earth had. But one of the questions that was raised by his detractors, by those on the other side of the debate, was this. But those very same Jews who had all of those advantages did not believe in the Messiah. They didn't embrace the Savior. Isn't that how the beginning of John's Gospel goes? He came to that which was his own, to his own people, but his own people, what? Received him not. And so one of the arguments is, well, God had made all of these promises to the Jews. He made that promise to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky, than the sand on the beach. He made that promise to David that one of David's descendants would one day sit on his throne and establish a kingdom that would be forever. But here we are, Paul. And those very same people, those very same Jews, they do not believe. So, does their faithlessness or their lack of faith nullify the faithfulness of God. In other words, is God's faithfulness dependent upon our faithfulness? Now that was one of the questions that was raised. You can imagine how that would be brought up. If you're a Jew and you're listening to what Paul says and you recognize that the vast majority of your people do not receive the Messiah, you've got to wonder, well, Has God been untrue to his promises? How does Paul respond to that? Well, he just brings it up here in Romans chapter 3. As he did with that first question, he's going to flesh it out in greater detail when you get to Romans chapter 9. But so as not to leave it hanging for us today, let me just suggest to you how Paul responds to this second objection. It's from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. Just keep your finger there in Romans 3. Skip ahead to Romans chapter 9. Let's just go ahead and read through it, and then I'll go through it rather quickly to describe how Paul answers. Romans chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong, and here are all the advantages that he lists. 
The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But here's the second question. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed simply because the vast majority of Jews have not believed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now again, there's a lot that we're going to have to get into when we get to Romans chapter 9, because right there you have that whole subject of election that makes everybody very anxious. But we're not going to deal with that today. He goes on, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So how does Paul respond to the charge that if the people of God have not believed in the Messiah, God's faithfulness is somehow nullified? First thing he says is this, look, God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and He is just, and He is sovereign and just, even if the mass of Jews are passed over for the time being. That's the first thing He says. Second thing He says is that if you actually read the Old Testament closely, what you will discover is that God had prophesied all along that the bulk of Israel would reject the Messiah. That's the second thing He's saying in Romans chapter 9. Third thing is this, he says the offer of the gospel to the Gentiles, because the gospel had to be preached first to the Jews, but because the Jews rejected it, what happened? They turned and took the message to the Gentiles. Let me give you a great example of that, practically speaking. Turn to Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. It's the book that immediately precedes this one, and I'm going to show you how this worked out. Acts chapter 13. This is the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas. They had been sent off by the church in Antioch. We talked a little bit about that church if you were at the annual meeting here a few weeks ago. 
They were sent off by the church in Antioch. The first thing they did is they traveled down the coast to a place called Seleucia, took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus and preached the gospel there on Cyprus. Then we're told they traveled up to the continent and went to Pisidian Antioch. This is another Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. This is Pisidian Antioch. And they went into the synagogue, as was their custom, so that Paul could reason with the people from the scriptures. And we're told that they had a wonderful response. In fact, it was such an extraordinary response that when they were leaving the synagogue, people begged them not to stop. I've always said this is every preacher's dream. (laughs) To get close to the end of your sermon and you're ready to wrap it up and they say, don't stop, don't stop. (laughs) I say it's a dream because it's not been fulfilled for me yet, but at any rate... That's what they basically say. And they invited them back the next Sabbath to talk about these things. Well, Luke tells us they came back the following week. And when they did, we're told the whole city had turned out to hear Paul and Barnabas. And the Jews were provoked to jealousy. Why were they provoked to jealousy? Well, because the synagogue was up and running. It had been running for years And you couldn't get the Gentiles, you couldn't get the other members of the community to come in. All of a sudden you have these two fellows that are from off and they come in and they preach and the next thing you know the place is packed to the rafters. And what makes matters even worse is you come in to sit in your pew and somebody's there. (laughs) And you think this is an exaggeration. I'm telling you, this is exactly how it was. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. No doubt making some of the same charges or posing the same questions that we're talking about here in Romans. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So going back now, Paul's response to that charge that the Jews have not believed and that therefore nullifies the faithfulness of God and all the promises that he'd made to his people in the past. Paul says that's not true. The offer of the gospel had made, been made first to the Jews. They rejected it and now it has gone to the Gentiles. And he said in the end that is ultimately going to be for Israel's good. Now you may say, well, how is that possible? You'll have to wait till Romans chapter 9 for me to tell you. Next thing he says is that it had always been the case in Israel that only a remnant was going to be saved. It was never a case, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, Paul says, that every single Jew without exception was saved. That was not true. Think about the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember the story when Elijah contends with the prophets of Baal? You remember that story? 
And Elijah goes up there and he contends with the prophets and he calls down fire from heaven and the fire comes down and it consumes the sacrifice. You remember that? Great victory. And we're told that all of the prophets and priests of Baal were put to the sword. But what happens next? Anybody remember what happens next? Oh, you need to go back and read your Old Testament. The story is Queen Jezebel is so outraged by this that she puts a bounty on Elijah's head. You're going to die for what you have done. You have insulted me. You've made a mockery of my religion. And you've slaughtered my priests and you're going to pay for it. And Elijah, we're told, having won this great victory, has to flee and hide away in a cave. And this man who had been on the top of the world just moments before is now dejected sorrowful. He forgets that the God who called down fire from heaven was capable of delivering him. And do you remember what he does? He sits there in the cave and he has a pity party. And he says to himself, I'm the only one left. You ever felt like you're the only one left sometimes? The only faithful one. The only one that sees things aright. That's exactly how Elijah felt. And of course, the Lord said to him, that's not necessarily the case. He said, there is a faithful remnant that has not bowed the knee to Baal. But we can all understand how Elijah felt. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. He said, look, it was never the case. Neither in the time of Elijah nor in the present day, he said, in which every Jew, without exception, believed. It's always been a case where there was a remnant. And finally, he says, we should not think that God has nullified his promises because, after all, history's not finished yet, is it? In fact, when you get to Romans chapter 11, it appears, it seems, as though God makes a promise that in the last days there will be a great revival among God's ancient peoples. The archbishop, if you came and heard him this past week when he was here for the rector's forum, made mention of the fact that in Jerusalem today, the Anglican Church of North America is engaged in conversations with a whole lot of different ecumenical groups, a lot of different Christian bodies, and one of those are the completed Jews, the Messianic Jews, those who have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. So Paul says you cannot say that God's promises have been nullified. Paul has an answer, you see. He has an answer to their first question. He has an answer to their second question. How many of you like being around somebody who always has an answer? Anybody like that? This is one of the things that really irritates my wife. We get into a debate from time to time. We'll get into an argument, into a conversation. And at one point, she will just say, you know, the problem with you, and I know I'm in trouble. She says, the problem with you is this. You sound right even when you're wrong. That's one of the liabilities of being married to a clergyman, I suppose. You sound right even when you're wrong. Well, that was the problem for Paul. They're asking all these questions. They're trying to trip him up. And he always has an answer. It's a lot like Jesus. Do you ever notice that? People would come and they would ask Jesus all questions and Jesus would always have an answer, would find themselves in the words of Shakespeare, hoist on their own patar. 
And it was so frustrating. They didn't know what to do. Sometimes, we're told, they dare not ask him any more questions. Sometimes, the only thing he did was make them seethe with anger to the point where they wanted to kill him. So they don't want to accept Paul's message, but on the other hand, he has an answer for every question they put to him. Now, when you're not making progress, what do you do? You stop questioning and you start quibbling. Lawyers tell me that there's an expression in the legal profession that if you have the facts, you pound the facts. And if you don't have the facts, Mr. Hagen, what do you do? Okay. You pound the table. You pound the table. That's what you do. And that is exactly what these people begin to do. They, they don't have the facts. They don't have the law. So what are they going to do? They're going to quibble with Paul. They're going to pound the table. Here's how they do it. But if our unrighteousness, that is to say our sinfulness, serves to show God's righteousness, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us by no means. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, obfuscation. That's what you do. You try to obfuscate. You try to change the subject. You begin to quibble over little matters of theology, and that's what they do here. They're saying, oh, look, why does God still find fault with us? I mean, if it's our sin that reveals his righteousness, well, that's a good thing. If our unfaithfulness shows God to be faithful, why is he judging us? It's a good thing. Now that's quibbling, isn't it? It's quibbling. They no longer have the facts. They no longer have the law. So they're going to pound the table. How does Paul respond to this? Well, he says a number of things. One of the things that he says, first and foremost, is you cannot, excuse me, question God. That's the first thing he says, is who are you to question God? You know, sometimes we do, don't we? Now, I'm not saying that we don't sometimes have legitimate questions. I'm not saying that we sometimes can't come before God with our concerns, with our doubts, You know, doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. We all have doubts, every single one of us. It's the idea of being between two minds. But sometimes we're not really asking legitimate questions. We're really accusing, aren't we? The very nature of the questions come in the form of an accusation. And Paul says, basically, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You're you're a finite creature. You see through a glass dimly. Who are you to question the righteousness, the goodness, the sovereignty of God? Let me show you how this works. Turn to the book of Job for just a minute. If you, I've told you before, if you want to find the book of Psalms, it's easy to just open your Bible to the center. You're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs, okay? If you hit Psalms or Proverbs, go to the left and you hit Job. 
so not a hard book to find. But you know the story of Job. Job is a fascinating book. It's probably the oldest book in the Bible. And it's all about suffering. It's about this man who is caught in a great cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And there is a sense in which he is, well, collateral damage to some degree. But actually he's being used by God in a powerful way, as a powerful witness, but he doesn't know it. So he's going through all of these terrible things, and he cannot understand why he's going through it. If you've ever been going through a tough time and you're wondering why, why this is happening to me, that's what I'm going to be preaching about this Sunday. The positive side of suffering. Almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Can there be anything positive in suffering? Well, you'll have to come in here. But that's what Job is doing. He's suffering, and he, because he is immortal, because he's down here on earth, doesn't understand why. And he's got friends who, believe me, if you've got friends like this, you're better off without friends, who are all coming to him and saying, Job, it's your fault. You're obviously under the judgment of God. Clearly you've done something wrong. And at first Job rejects that. But then, like Elijah, he begins to have a bit of a pity party for himself. He is beginning to wonder. He looks at his own life. He doesn't feel that he's done anything wrong. And he gets a little frustrated with God, and he begins to question God. And questions come almost in the form, as I said, not of an inquiry, but an accusation. Until God has had enough. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I like the old version. Gird up your loins like a man. You've been questioning me. I'm going to question you. All of a sudden, the tables have been turned. And you make it known to me. You think you know so much? Will you answer me these questions? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to, to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know this. And it goes on like that, on and on and on. Verse 1 of chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? Now eventually you get to the point where Job says, okay, I get it. Uncle, no more. Behold, I am of small account. 
What shall I answer you? I laid my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. That's chapter 40, verse 4. Enough, I'm sorry, you're right. And what does God say? Well, I'm not done with you yet. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? That's what God is saying. You, you would question me and put me in the wrong. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? And he goes on and on and on and on until finally Job in chapter 42 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's Paul's answer to our accusations. Who are we? Mere mortals. To think we can take it upon ourselves to question the Almighty or to obfuscate or to accuse. Paul goes on to say, look, not only should you not be testing God, but this whole argument that God finds or should find no fault with us because our sin glorifies Him because of His salvation, Paul says that's absolutely ridiculous. He said that is a failure to understand what salvation really is. That's a failure to understand that no person is ever justified in God's eyes without also being regenerate. Do you understand that? That no person is ever justified in God's eyes. That is declared righteous in God's eyes. That's Paul's whole point. That you and I cannot come into a right relationship with God on our own. There's nothing that we contribute to the process. Nothing save the sin from which we've been redeemed. We can offer nothing to God. It is all His work from start to finish, stem to turn, first to last. And so the accusation that they're making against God is, well, if it's our sin and we contribute nothing to the process, then our sin actually makes God look good because He saves us. And Paul says that is a failure to understand that no one is declared righteous in God's eyes without also being made righteous in God's eyes. There is no justification without regeneration. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. Unless you are born again. You are not declared righteous in God's eyes. That's a, that's a legal term, a forensic term. You are not declared righteous in God's eyes without also being made alive in God. This raises that whole question that we dealt with many times before, the relationship of faith and good works. There are basically three views when it comes to this notion of justification and regeneration. There's the Catholic view, which says, Faith plus good works equals justification. That's basically the Catholic view. Your faith plus your good works, 
your faith in the sacraments of the church or whatever it may be, your faith plus your good works will equal a right relationship with God. The Protestant view is different. The Protestant view is faith equals a right relationship with God plus good works. See how the equation is different? It's not faith plus good works equals justification. It's faith equals justification, a right relationship with God, but regeneration, good works. Now, there's a third view, and the third view is the view of antinomianism, which says faith equals justification and no good works are required. And Paul rejects that notion out of hand. He goes on to summarize all of this in verses 9 through 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? The answer is no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, for as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. This is a devastating analysis of the human condition. It's every bit as devastating as what Paul says in the first chapter. That there is no one righteous, not a single one. And what we're going to discover is that it's even worse than we think. This is a hard thing for us to accept, that there is no one righteous. There is no one who's good. No one. In God's eyes, we're going to discover no one has what it takes. In John chapter 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. He had just performed an extraordinary miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish. Incidentally, performed that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Did you know that? Now, that doesn't count the resurrection because theologians generally regard the resurrection as an act of God, the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit. But the only miracle that Jesus performed that's recorded in all four of the Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000, probably because it made such a huge impact on the people, especially living in that agrarian culture. But having fed the people with the five loaves of bread, the great multiplication and the five and the two small fish, Jesus then goes on to say, you shouldn't be striving for the food that will satisfy you only for a time. He says, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. Whoever feeds on me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And do you know what the people's response to that was? Now, they've just seen this extraordinary miracle. Jesus said, I'm the true bread. I'm what you need. I'm what really satisfies. Without me, you're going to go hungry and thirsty for the rest of your lives. Your souls are going to be starving and parched. And do you know what the people said? Verse 60 his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And they turned and they followed him no more. 
Now, the word that is translated as heart in that passage is the word scleros, from which we get scleroderma, a condition which is the hardening of the skin. It doesn't mean hard to understand. They understood it very well. The problem was it was hard for them to accept. They didn't want to believe that there was something that they could not provide for themselves. They did not want to believe that Jesus alone could satisfy their needs. It was a hard lesson for them to hear, and so they turned and they followed him no more. Well, what Paul says here in Romans about there being no one righteous, no, not one, I think that's just as hard for us to hear. We simply do not want to believe that. I said there are three views of justification. There are three views also of the human condition. And really only three views if you think about it. The first view is what I call the view of the optimist. And that is that human beings are basically good. Now, I don't want to see a show of hands because I don't want to have to correct anybody. But if I were to have asked you, do you think that people are basically good? Would you have said yes? Not perfect, mind you, but but pretty good. That's the view of the optimists, that, that human beings are basically good, that we are spiritually well. And, and not only well, but we're getting better. You know, we're on the upswing. It's a process of social evolution. We're getting better and better with time. Good response. The second view is the pessimist view. (laughs) That humanity is not well, that humanity is sick. Now, there are varying degrees of sickness, as you can well imagine. Some might say we're not well, we're sick, we're not perfect. Others might say we're in mortal danger. We're really sick. But of course, as long as you're sick, you're still alive. What's the motto of South Carolina? While I breathe, I hope. So while there's breath, there's life. That's what we think. And then there's the third view, and this is the view of the realist. That spiritually speaking... We are neither healthy, nor are we sick. We're dead. Now, it doesn't take much to disabuse people of the idea that human beings are well and getting better. Probably the events of the 20th century disabused us of that idea. But, of course, people have short-term memory. But you're right, Ms. M pointed out, what's going on in the Ukraine right now, what's going on in Eastern Europe and so many other parts of the world is evidence that human beings are not well. And we are not getting better. It's the repeat of the same thing over and over again. Now, the harder idea for people to accept is that last idea, that we are actually dead. They may be willing to admit that we're sick, but if you're sick, there's always the possibility that you'll recover What we have a hard time getting around is the idea that we're dead. But I want you to understand that that is the biblical picture of the human condition, spiritually speaking. We're dead. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. But as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. 
And he repeats the same thing here. In fact, he doesn't just say you're dead. He says you're dead, dead, and dead. Look at how he puts it in verse 10. He says there's no one righteous. That is to say there's no one in a right relationship with God. That's a judgment on our moral character. He goes on to say there's no one who understands. That's a judgment on our intellect. And finally, he says, there is no one who seeks God. And if you actually look at your own life, at the lives of human beings over history, you'll discover that that is absolutely true. What does Paul mean when he says, there is no one righteous, no one has moral ability? Well, let me put it to you this way. It's like playing with monopoly money. That's not to say that there aren't people out there doing good things. There are. We would even say that there are some people that are moral atheists. They're doing good things, things that are acceptable and praiseworthy in the eyes of men. But the question is, are those things praiseworthy in the eyes of God? So imagine if I brought in a bunch of games of Monopoly and set them down at your table and said, today we are not going to go ahead and, and have a Bible study on Romans. I just want you to play Monopoly. How many of you like Monopoly? I love Monopoly, but nobody likes to play with me because it's very cutthroat. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to take you for everything you've got. I've got a capitalist heart when it comes to Monopoly. So you're going to play Monopoly. And one of you at that table is going to get all the good property. You're going to own the railroads. You're going to own Park Place and boardwalk, you're, you're going to have it all. And at the end, and at the end, even though everybody has been distributed with the same amount of money, at the end, you've got the lion's share of it. You won. You own all that property. Now, you decide that you're going to take it up there to South State Bank and go in there to the teller and explain that you would like to make a deposit. And she says, oh, that's wonderful. Well, how, what would you like to do? I would like to deposit $150,000.53. And you slide your Monopoly money underneath the window. And she reaches down, not for a deposit slip, but to ring the alarm system. <laughs> See, your Monopoly money may work when you're playing a board game, but it doesn't work out there in the real world. And that's the way it is with our acts of righteousness. Those acts of righteousness may be legal tender, as it were, in man's world. But they don't work in God's world. That's the difference, you see. That's the difference. Your good works, while they may be pleasing to men, are not necessarily pleasing to God. It's like monopoly money. It doesn't work in his world. That's what Paul is saying. We're dead in our moral ability. Our good works can never get us into heaven. If you want to earn your way into heaven, you know how good you have to be? You, really, you want to know? I'm going to tell you. You want to know how good you have to be to get into heaven? 
Because, again, we all think God grades on the curve. So, you know, you know it, I just want a passing grade. I'm going to tell you what the passing grade is. Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's how good you have to be. You don't have to be better than the clergy. That's not as hard as you might think. You have to be perfect as God is perfect. And so all your efforts, they're what? Like that pink, green, white, yellow, monopoly money. That's the first thing Paul says. He says, we are spiritually dead because there is nothing in terms of our moral ability that should earn God's favor. Furthermore, he says, we're dead in our intellect. Now, what he means here is not that we don't have brains that work. He doesn't mean that when he says no one understands that we do not understand Christian doctrines or you can't understand the idea of justification by grace through faith. I had some seminary professors, one or two that were not even believers. Somewhere along the line, I guess they lost their faith. But let me tell you something. They could lecture on some of the Christian doctrines in such a way it made you want to stand up and cheer. They understood it intellectually, but they really didn't understand it. They didn't understand its implications. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a minute, because this is what Paul is talking about. Easy to find, 1 Corinthians, the next book. 1 Corinthians follows Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is what Paul writes. He says, For the word or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the very power of of God, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom... But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, that's the critical word, called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, it's not enough to simply know about God. It's not enough to simply understand the Christian doctrines unless that head knowledge translates to the heart, which can only be done if the Holy Spirit regenerates you, you will be lost. So we're dead in our moral ability, we're dead in our intellect, and finally he says we're dead in our desire to seek God. You know, some people will make a show of seeking after God. This is one of the things, after about 30 years in ministry, has always made me leery. When I meet somebody who has been a member of about 10 different churches, 10 different denominations, I'm always skeptical. Because what they're telling you is, well, I joined the Baptist church, and when I got to the Baptist church, you know, I, I discovered that, that that was not for me. And so I went out and 
sought God in the Presbyterian church. And they stay in the Presbyterian church for a little while, and then they decide, no, 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 the Presbyterian church. And then they join the Anglican or the Episcopal church and discover, oh, no, 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 it gets a little hot for them there, and they decide to leave there. And they, they join a Bible church, and they join the Methodist church and the Lutheran church. They go through all of these churches, and they say they're looking for God. But I can tell you exactly what they're doing. They're not looking for God. They're running from God. They're running from God. Because somewhere along the line, you will encounter him. But the problem is, God is going to get very close to you, and sometimes we don't like a God who gets close to us. We'd like to keep God at a distance. I think the archbishop described it as having God in a drawer of your life. And, and you open the drawer, and you take him convenient, and when it's not convenient, you put him back in the drawer and you shut it. No one, of their own accord, Paul says, seeks God. No one. There's no one righteous, there's no one who understands, and there's no one who seeks God because they're dead. But the glorious message of the gospel, the good news, is that God is a God of grace, and even though we don't seek Him, He seeks us. He seeks us. Francis Thompson was a well-known Catholic mystic in the 19th century, lived in England, and he wrote a famous poem. G.K. Chesterton loved it. It was his favorite poem. He considered him to be one of the greatest poets of the English language. And that poem was entitled the hound of heaven. And basically, what Thompson does is he describes his own life and how he was fleeing from God. Just as a little stanza up there on the screen, I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind, and in the mist of tears I hid from him, and under running laughter. That's how people run from God, isn't it? Sometimes they run, they, 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 they put on a show of laughter and so forth, but they're running from God. Sometimes it's in a veil of tears, but we run from God, we try to get away from God. He said, but God was like the hound of heaven. God had his scent and God pursued him, ran him down. Listen, if you are a Christian today, and you are honest with yourself, and you look back over the course of your life, what you will discover is you really didn't choose God. God chose you. You didn't seek Him out. He sought you out. He brought all of the various people into your life. It was no chance. It was not by accident. God so superintended the process that you were brought to the point that, as C.S. Lewis said, you made a choice, but you could not have made any other choice. And that's when you begin to be able to sing that hymn, not just with your lips, but with your heart. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He's the hound of heaven, but more importantly, he's the good shepherd. That's how he's described in Matthew chapter 18. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in the fold and goes out 
and searches for the one who is lost. You ever think about that? Most of us would cut our losses. We were shepherds and we had a hundred sheep and one had wandered off. We'd be satisfied that we got 99. Look on the bright side. But God is not satisfied until all those who belong to him are home. So he'll leave the 99 in the safety of the fold and he will go out at the risk of his own life until he finds the one and brings him home. And it's only when you realize that you are incapable of finding your way back, that you're dread in your trespasses and in your sins, and yet God sought you out when you were lost and made you alive even when you were dead and made you a child even when you were not, it's then that you begin to understand the glory and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That's what grace is all about. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the Apostle Paul will not allow us to quibble. We thank you that he reminds us of what we really are and of how bad our situation is and how lost our condition. And he does all of this that we might appreciate all the more the mercy and the grace of God who seeks us out and makes us alive gives us a new birth that we might begin to seek after him and find him. Grant us the grace to see ourselves in the light of eternity. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, next week, the bondage of the will. So.